Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Matt Robertson explores the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23 with us. Now, here's Matt. Well, good morning, everyone. I just want to make sure that everybody can hear me. I don't know if I can get a thumbs up or... Okay, so you can all hear me. That's good. Um, well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I w- it would have been better to be there in person, which was the plan a mere couple of weeks ago, but obviously lots of things have changed uh, since then. But what I want to look at this morning is a, is a chapter in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 7. I've been doing a, a study through the book of Mark, uh, and it's something I would actually highly recommend that, that everyone does to not, not just read through books of the Bible, but take, take a book of the Bible and really study it, like invest the time in it. I've been in the Gospel of Mark for almost a year now. And uh, just as, as I've been preaching regularly, now I've, I've been commended in full-time work at Grace Bible Chapel here in Timmins. But I say that like there's a lot of distance between South End and Timmins, but I do realize it's just down the road. Um, and yet, here we are on Zoom, but that's okay. And uh, it's uh, to actually get into the weeds in a, in a book of the Bible and to study it from start to finish, because you begin to see themes, you begin to see, you know, how the author works and their thought process and how they present ideas. And one of the things that we find with the Gospel of Mark is that what Mark is trying to do and likely his source material, just from hints within the text and from church history, that this is Peter's account of his experiences with the Lord Jesus. Mark is described, he's writing it for him, but he's getting his information uh, from the Apostle Peter. So what one of the things that Mark or Peter through Mark is trying to show us is who Jesus is, not so much by the things that he taught, because there's actually very few passages about what Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Mark. But he wants to show us who Jesus is through the things that he does and also through the way that he reacts to how people challenge him. That's another thing. We see this as a constant theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 7, we have one of these accounts where Jesus is challenged. He's challenged by uh, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, now, just to, uh, what I want to do before we get into the actual passage itself is I want to get some background information. Because one of the questions, if you were just reading your Bible from the beginning and you, you started at Genesis, because that's a good place to start at the very beginning, and you work your way all the way through the Bible and you get to the end of, of Malachi and then you jump into the New Testament, you would find things to be very different. You know, there's that 400-year gap between at the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, and the entire climate has changed, uh, both politically and, and in many ways in the nation of Israel. I actually just want to to read an excerpt. This is from from Julius Scott Jr.'s uh, his, his book, Jewish Backgrounds in the New Testament. 
And I'm just going to read it here because it gives us an idea, if we've maybe never thought of this before, of, of how drastic a change it is and how many things have changed between the Old Testament and the New. Uh, in moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the reader is plunged into a radically different world. The original language is no longer Hebrew or Aramaic, but Greek. Persian political dominance has given way to Rome. Jew, a term found throughout some of the books covering the end of the Old Testament, like Jeremiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, but only rarely elsewhere in the Old Testament, is now the common name for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The word king no longer designates an absolute monarch. New administrative titles, such as ethnarch, tetrarch, and governor, or procurator, appear for the first time and take on a new significance. The Jewish priesthood is more prominent in its role, broadened to include administration of civil as well as ceremonial affairs. In one sense, or one senses an increased degree of hostility in the attitude of the people of Israel toward their foreign rulers. Centurions and publicans or tax collectors appear. For the first time, we meet the Jewish council or Sanhedrin and find worship being carried on in the synagogue as well as in the temple. Groups such as Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, rabbis, and zealots have recently come on the scene. Scribes have taken on new importance and altered roles. A different cultural influence is present, one which, one toward which the Jewish feelings are ambivalent. In the religious life of the times, Old Testament law continues to occupy a central place, but it's interpreted and, and observed with new emphases. Written scripture seems to share authority with customs or traditions. Concerns for Jewish separateness from other peoples is heightened, as is the determination to protect the Hebrews' unique place before God. So that just illustrates for us how many things have changed uh, dramatically between the Old Testament and New. And this is the climate into which Jesus is born. Uh, and so we, we come to our passage here. And what, what Jesus wants to really illustrate in this passage, uh, in the way that he's challenged from the Pharisees, is, is the question of what defiles a person. Uh, and, you know, in, in my previous life as, a, as, as an engineer, uh, from time to time, we would be called into a situation where, where something is broken or something is not worked, working, and, you know, the client can't figure out what's going on. Uh, and as some of you, you've had, uh, if you're a mechanic or you've any kind of, uh, you know, technical experience, you probably run into this kind of thing, whether it's computer programming or whatever, like something's supposed to work and it's not working. Uh, and so we would come in and we'd go through this process that we call troubleshooting. Well, well, the first and most important thing that you have to do in troubleshooting is that you have to figure out where the problem is. Like, what is the problem? And this is the key part of the discussion that Jesus is trying to address here. Uh, what is the problem? You know, why did Jesus come? What is his mission? What did he come to solve? Because we'll see that that the Pharisees and even his own disciples, if we pay attention throughout the gospel, realize that their assessment of the problem is completely different than what Jesus tells us the problem actually is for humanity. So, we come to this passage. The very first verse in, in seven, in chapter seven, verse one tells us that, that the Pharisees gathered to him and some of the scribes had come from Jerusalem. 
Now, understanding that Jesus' ministry at this point has has almost exclusively been in and around the Sea of Galilee. And uh, that's in the northern part of the nation of Israel. Jerusalem is in the south. So, I mean, this this is, would be kind of familiar to us. This would be like, you know, the Sea of Galilee is like Timmins, like way up in the sticks. And Jerusalem's like Toronto. It's like all the, all the uh, important people are down there. That's where government is. That's where the hub, that's where everything's going on. And, and like way up there in, in Galilee, well, that's just the sticks. And so Jesus has now attracted the attention of the scribes from Jerusalem from the big city. And so they've come up um, not to affirm or even just to listen to him. They've come to challenge him because one of the things that we learned from even the previous chapter in chapter six is that the fame of Jesus and his disciples has grown enormously. Uh, we, the previous chapter tells us that even when Jesus tries to bring his disciples aside to a quiet, desolate place so they can have some just some time together to decompress after he had sent them out uh, to perform miracles when he granted them his authority and they had, they'd healed people and cast out demons. They'd returned and they didn't even have a chance to eat because there were so many people around and so much going on. He tries to pull them aside to a desolate place, but they're recognized. When they get there, there's over 5,000 people in a crowd waiting for them. This is the level of fame. Uh, and, and how well known Jesus has become. And so this has attracted the attention of the scribes in Jerusalem. And so they come and they come to challenge him. They come to question him. They come to try and discredit him in some way. And so that's where we are when we get to, uh, chapter seven. I'm going to read the first 23 verses of chapter seven, uh, of the book of Mark. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, sorry, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. Whatever Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. 
But the thing that comes out of a person, the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Let's just ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word this morning. Father in heaven, as we as we come before you this morning, we do thank you for your word and it's in great humility that we that we open it and we we read from it, Father, and then we just ask that you would reveal yourself to us through it. Um, Father, we thank you that you saw fit uh, to put these words down and to keep them over the generations so that we could know more of who you are. And Father, know your love and your mercy towards us. Uh, We just ask for your help this morning. I ask for your help as I speak, that the words I say would be yours. And Father, I pray for everyone who would hear that their ears would be opened. And that Father, we would just be blessed this morning uh, as we learn more of who you are. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have this this question of uh, washing of hands. Now, we're sitting in the middle of a pandemic. Washing your hands is a good thing. That's a hygienic thing to do. Uh, I used to work produce at at, uh, at Walmart, and every time you'd go to the washroom or go on break, or you'd come back and you'd have to wash your hands from elbow to elbow to tip for an extended period of time with soap and water. I'm glad for that. That's a good thing. I want to when I pick up my groceries, I want to know that you know the people who have been who placed it there wash their hands. This has nothing to do with hygiene. Absolutely nothing to do with hygiene. So from from our perspective, in 2021, in the middle of a pandemic, we're like, well, what's wrong with washing hands? Why is why didn't Jesus' disciples do this? That's not what their perspective on this was. With the uh, the traditions of the elders, you see that mentioned twice. Where this is the question: the Pharisees say, "Why don't your disciples follow the traditions of the elders?" Now, how come you're ignoring the traditions of the elders? Now, some scholars have argued that 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 the translation of this phrase should actually be capitalized. Because this wasn't just a sort of a general, you know, passed down, you know, so-and-so said it to so. This was a body of work that they had come up with. I see for the, for the Pharisees, they're, they're thinking, and then you see this in, in some Seneca Temple period writings, you see us in the actual body of work that they have. Their thinking was that, yes, you know, like the, the law of God is, is good. You know, we have that, that's written in the Torah, that's, that's good, but, you know, we also have the oral law, which, well, Moses also, that God also gave us this, this oral law of all these different rules and, and different things that, that we're also to do as well. And one of the things that was in there, this washing of the hands. 
And it was particular for when you go out into the marketplace. So you have to ask yourself the question, what's going on here? Like, why are they, like, what is it that they're trying to uh, keep themselves from doing? Why do they think they're going to be defiled? Well, if you go into the marketplace, you may run into somebody who is a Gentile, or you might brush by somebody who happens to be a sinner. Or you might touch a piece of fruit or or something that's been touched by somebody else who's a sinner or maybe even a tax collector or, you know, and it's this idea that their sort of spiritual ick of who they are could rub off on you. And so you don't want to then go touch your food and eat your food because then that'll somehow convey to you. So you have to cleanse yourself. And this ritual washing of the hands uh, essentially what they would do is it would, you would put your, I believe it started with the left hand and you would, you would pour water over your left hand, palm down. And then you would switch hands and you would pour water over your right hand, palm down. And then you would turn your left hand over, palm up, and you would pour water over it. And then you would put your right hand, you'd do the same on the other side. And then you would say a prayer, a ritual prayer, a rote repetition, and then you would be done. And this was the, Ritual washing of the hands according to the traditions of the elders. And this was one of many things. They washed everything. Now, and this was the thinking of the day that somehow the sins of other people could, could, you know, make their way onto you. And so you had to keep yourself separate from them. You know, we see this account where, like, when, if you think of the account in uh, the gospel of of, of Luke, when you have a woman, when, when Jesus is in Simon's house and this woman comes and, and anoints his, his feet with oil and, and she, 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 with her tears and with her hair, she's drawing his, 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 uh, you know, she's anointing his feet and, and what's the contention that Simon has and the, and the other people who are there? They're like, well, he's a prophet. Doesn't he know that this woman is a sinner? Well, what's their problem? Well, she's touching him. You don't want to let sinners touch you. That's not okay. You know, what was the, what contention did they have with Jesus, you know, when he goes to Zacchaeus's house or goes to Matthew's house, both of whom were tax collectors? It's like, what, why is he dining with sinners? See, this is what their problem was, is they, they were keeping themselves separate and they had all these rules to keep themselves separate. And here Jesus is going and he's breaking all of these rules that they have. In fact, he doesn't even let his disciples follow them. This isn't the first time that they've had contention with them. You know, earlier in the book of Mark, on the Sabbath, his, his disciples are going along and, and plucking heads of grain off the side of the fields and then rubbing them together in their hands to remove the husks so that they can eat the grain underneath. And the Pharisees are like, well, I, I, you're, you're doing work on the Sabbath. How come you're letting your disciples? You're breaking the Sabbath. Here's the fact. Jesus never once broke the Sabbath. You know, even when he healed on the Sabbath, he didn't break the Sabbath. Even when he contends with them and says, yeah, you don't even know what you're talking about. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He never actually broke the Sabbath. What he did was he broke the traditions of the elders. He broke this body of work that they had compiled you know, and later rabbinical teachings would describe it as a fence out and around the law to try and, you know, if you follow all of these little rules, then you won't even come close 
to breaking God's law. But the problem of it is, is that in all of their rules, you know, they created circumstances and situations where they actually did break the law of God. And so Jesus points this out to them. You know, he, he goes back and he goes into, into Jeremiah and he says, yeah, Jeremiah was, he was really right about you guys when he prophesied about you. And he quotes this verse that says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He says, you're hypocrites. And, and Jeremiah, he was prophesying about you when he was talking about this. You know, this, this whole problem, if we actually look at it at its core, this actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You know, if we, if we think of what happened at the Garden of Eden, you know, Adam is, is created and, and he's placed in the garden. It's this perfect place of God's fellowship with mankind. You know, man is there and God is there. It's this, this joining of the, of the created and the divine and it's a place of, of fellowship. And God says, here is, here's all of my goodness. You, you can eat and enjoy of any of the trees in the garden, of any of the fruit. You can enjoy all of this, except for this one tree. This one tree is the, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's, it's wrong for you. It's bad for you. It's actually death for you. Because if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And so what God is saying to Adam, he's saying all of this over here, the entirety of the garden, this is good. This thing over here, this is bad. This is wrong. This is evil. Don't do this. Enjoy this goodness. Don't do this bad thing. And of course, what's, what's the lie? You know, what is it? What is the lie that, that the serpent tells Eve? It says, you know, God's lying to you. That, that thing isn't wrong. It's not bad. In fact, it's actually good. If you eat of that fruit, you're going to be like God and you're going to know what is good and evil. In fact, you're going to be able to decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. And what's Eve's response? She sees the fruit. She looks at it. She says, well, this is good. I like this. This, this is, this is desirable. It can make us wise and it looks good to eat. And, you know, I know God said it's bad, but I think it's good. And so I'm going to take it. And she did. And from that point forward, mankind has gone through, though the main problem that we all face is that we're deciding for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. We're saying, God, I know you've said it, but I, I got a better idea. And that's actually what the Pharisees are doing here as well. They're saying, God, yeah, I know you have your law and you gave it to us and it's really good, but I don't think it quite goes far enough. You know, I don't, I think you might have, you, you kind of skirted on some things. And so we think we know better than you. And so we're going to add some more things to it because, you know, we just, we don't think you quite, you quite caught it all. And this is what the Pharisees are doing. They're deciding for themselves. They're saying, God, I don't quite trust what you've told us. We think we have to do more. And so we're going to add to it. And so that's what came about with the traditions of the elders, this body of work of all these extra rules. 
in examples with the with the Sabbath. You know, the Sabbath starts at sundown. You know, if these types of situations or scenarios that they would come up with, like, well, what if you had had somebody over and they were leaving just at at sundown and and just as the sun is about to completely go down, they they hand you an apple and your arm is outside of your house and you grab that apple and then the sun goes down. Now it's the Sabbath. Well, what do you do? Can, Can you, are you allowed to bring that apple into your house? No, you can't do that because that's what you'd be bringing, bringing groceries into your house and that's work on the Sabbath. Well, can I, can you just drop the apple then? Well, no, you can't do that either because if you drop the apple, the seeds may go into the ground and plant a tree and then you're gardening on the Sabbath. And these are the kinds of things that were within the traditions of the elders. And we have this case that Jesus brings before them. He says, look, you, you've got this little thing here that you call Corbin. And you say, well, you can, you can take things and you can dedicate it to the Lord. And then they're, they're, uh, they're solely for that purpose, which is great for them because they were in control of the, of the coffers of the temple. You know, it was more money in their pocket for this kind of thing. And this was an extra rule that they had added onto it. And Jesus says, you know what? Moses said to honor your father and mother. In fact, if you don't, you're, you should die. If you revile your father and mother, you should die. That's the extent of how important that is to God, that that's what he put in the law. You can even look into the New Testament in, in Timothy where Paul says, if anyone doesn't, like when he's talking about the list of widows, he says, if anyone doesn't look after their own family, they're worse than an unbeliever. You know, that, that widows who have family alive shouldn't be put on the list of widows to be looked after by the church because that's their family's responsibility. And here the Pharisees had put together this thing called Corbin, where, you know, if you dedicate your stuff to God, then you can say to mom and dad when they're in their need, when they're in their old age and they can't support themselves. And again, this is a time period where there's no social assistance. There's no assisted living facilities. There's none of that stuff. It's the family's responsibility to look after them. You can say, well, sh- mom and dad, sorry, all my stuff is Corbin. It's dedicated to God. So I can't use it to help you out. You're on your own. And Jesus makes the point. He says, you've made void the actual word of God by your traditions. You have taken the traditions of men, the commandments of men, and you've made them doctrine. And by doing so, you have violated God's actual law. And he says this little phrase at the end of that that is amazing to me. He says, and many such things you do. In other words, this is just one example. There are many more. And you know, this is, this is a, a warning to us, isn't it? Because we have a, we have a tendency to really want to be right as human beings. It's, it's something that's like, we really like being right. And sometimes when we, we look at the, the things that we do, when we do church, you know, and, and we do church in a particular way, and we like the way that we do it, it's important that we understand the difference between doctrine and tradition. Like, traditions aren't necessarily bad. Like, I go to Grace Bible Chapel in Timmins, and, and a lot of the things that we do are, are tradition. But they're good tradition. I really like them. I like the way that we have, uh, you know, a, we have open worship at the breaking of bread. 
And, and we have that, that every week and it's for an hour long and we remember the Lord in that way. No, not every church does that. Now I can't go and point to a passage in the scripture that says you have to do it every week in this particular way. And this, this, no, that's a tradition, but it's a good tradition. I like it, but that doesn't make the, you know, Baptist church down the street that does it, you know, once a month doesn't make them wrong. But sometimes we, we, we take the things that we, that are, that are easier for us to do. Like it's like a, a, a list that we can check off and we can say, well, I got this and I got this and I got this and I got this and I got this. Okay. Well, that makes me spiritual now because I've, I've checked all my boxes. I've got the right colored shirt and I'm wearing the right kind of shoes and I, I say the right things. And I don't say these things. And this is what the Pharisees did. They had a list of things and, and lists are powerful, right? They're easier. You, you can just check boxes and you can say, okay, I'm doing, I can do better than so-and-so because I got more boxes checked than he does or she does. And, and this is what the Pharisees did. You think of the, you know, when, when Jesus tells the parable of the two men who go into the temple to pray, one's a Pharisee who stands in the middle with his arms up high. And one's a tax collector over in the corner. Well, what's the Pharisee say? What's his prayer? God, thank you. I'm not like that guy in the corner. You know, and, and we can get caught in that trap. It's so very easy to get caught in that trap of saying like, I'm, I'm doing okay because I'm doing all these things because I'm, I'm better than that person over there. And, and that just, that has nothing to do with the way things actually work, uh, which, which Jesus goes on to illustrate. You see, at this point, he, he kind of ignores the Pharisees now, and he calls the crowd to him. The whole entire crowd. You can see that this is like, this is really important. It is hear me, all of you, and understand. Like, this is so important for everybody to understand. And he calls the crowd to him, and he says, there is nothing outside of a person that is that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. You know, this, this list of external things, these, these boxes you can check and like, that's not the issue. Those things don't defile you. You know, whether you wear a tie or not, that used to be a thing when I was growing up and, you know, when I, when I went to church, it was like, you go in and everybody had a suit and tie on. I know it was, it's not, I'm not criticizing where I grew up. It just sort of was like the way, the way things were at the time. You know, you dressed up to go to church and, and in my, in my arrogant youth, I thought, well, that's the right way to do it. And, and I could be, you know, as a, as a 16 year old could be critical of other places that didn't do it that way. But it doesn't mean that's not what it is. It's not the external things, but you know, a suit isn't going to make you, isn't going to make you holy or righteous. That's not the issue at all. And. And then they go into the, into the house and Jesus disciples, they ask him about this because they don't understand it. And, you know, you could sense a bit of frustration in Jesus here where he's like, you, you don't understand this. Like even you don't get this. You've been with me all this time and I've taught you all these things and you, you still don't understand it. And he says, look, whatever you eat, it doesn't go into your heart. It goes into your stomach and goes through you. That doesn't defile you. You see, it's what comes out of the heart that defiles a person. It's the problem is, is the heart. And when the Bible talks about the heart, you know, it's not that organ in our chest that, that pumps and, and pushes blood through our body. That's not what it's talking about. 
in biblical terms, the heart, the soul, the, the mind, like all of these things talk about the, the core of who you are. You know, the center of your decision making, the things that you actually truly believe that cause you to do the things that you do and make the decisions that you make. You know, that part of you that you don't even really understand or have a full grasp on. You know, you get that verse in Jeremiah that tells us that the heart's deceitful. You know, it's it's desperately wicked. It's desperately sick. Who can know it? You know, that's the problem. That's where the defilement comes from. And what are the things that defile? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these things, all of these evil things come from within. And that's our problem, isn't it? You know, Jesus has troubleshooted the situation down and he's found the problem. He's figured out exactly what's wrong and it's the human heart. That we're defiled from the inside out. That we're selfish, that that we're proud, we're foolish, we're, we're all of these things, we're wicked, we're deceitful, that, that when it comes down to it, no matter, even if we think we're good people, if we're honest with ourselves, there's so much going on that isn't in our heart. And that's the issue. That's the problem. You know, Jesus would later on in Mark chapter nine teach something that is incredibly difficult like a real challenging teaching. He would say this in verse 43. He'd say, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter lame, enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But our hand isn't our problem, and our eye isn't our problem, and our foot isn't our problem. The heart is our problem. And we can't cut out our heart, can we? And that's the desperate situation that humanity is in. And that is why Jesus came to begin with. The disciples would have thought, and, and you see it so often in the way they, they said things and, and reacted to things, they would have thought Jesus was the Messiah coming to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, to kick out the Romans, to make Israel the, the main hub, and they were going to be part of the ruling class because they were his disciples. That's what they thought he was here to do. And even when he outright told them that he was going to come and die, that he was going to be handed over to the, the leaders of the Pharisees and into the hands of the Romans and then be crucified and rise again three days later. They still didn't get it. They still didn't understand. You see, Jesus didn't come to rule. He came to rescue. No, thank God he didn't come to rule. One day he will come to rule. And that's a day I look forward to. But he came to solve the problem of the human heart. You know, in Second Corinthians, Paul would write something that, you know, if it wasn't written in scripture, I, I, I would be challenged to say without fear and trepidation. But he says this, he says, 
Sorry, I've lost one. <laughs> oh, now i got to look it up. I thought I had it in my notes, but I don't have it in my notes. I apologize. Give me two seconds here. I want to quote it. I don't want to try and quote it from memory because that sometimes doesn't work very well. In verse chapter 5, verse 21, he tells, he says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, earlier up in the chapter, it says that if we are in Christ Jesus, we're our new creation. You see, the problem of our defiled heart, the problem of our own sin, that's the problem that Jesus came to solve. That when he... When he died on that cross, when he was crucified on that cross and, and the eyes of the world were shut for three hours and darkness covered the earth, God the Father laid out his wrath. The punishment that you deserve, that I deserve for your sin and for mine was laid on him and he became sin and he was punished for our sake, enduring the wrath of the Father for our sake. So that we can find forgiveness of sins. The problem is taken care of. And we're forgiven. And when we come in humility. And and what's the message that Jesus preached from the beginning. Was repent and believe. That was his message all along. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. And when we come and we repent of our sins. And we believe in who he is. We're saved and we can know our sins forgiven. We can know not the, the, our, our defiled heart that all that we have done, all the sins that we've committed have been washed away, have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. And three days later, he rose again from the grave. And because of his resurrection, we've been given new life. We are a new creation and we're given a new heart. And you know, so much of these ideas and concepts in the Bible are, are, are this, this now and not yet. Like we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. That is now. Do you know that if you know Christ is your savior this morning, you are a new creation. You probably don't quite feel like one though, do you? But you are. And yet there still is this process of, of becoming that new creation, the fullness of that new creation. You know, the Apostle Paul would describe that as his lifelong journey near the end of his life, the thing that he strived for. You know, and he would write to the Philippians that, that God who begun a good work in you will see it through to completion. And that's true that, that yes, I am a new creation now. I have a new heart and I'm get I'm also in the process of becoming that new creation. And one day in glory, that will be complete. God will complete that work that he began in me. And so it's this now and not yet. But this is, I mean, when we talk about the resurrection, the wonder of the resurrection is this new life, this new creation, this new heart that we've been given to replace the old. That we are a new creation, that the the new has come and the old has passed away. And that's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? You know, Christ is such a good, he tells us the problem. The problem isn't the external things. It's, you know, you're not, you're not going to find a solution by, you know, voting for the right political party or, or 
donating to the right cause or holding the, this particular ideology or what, whatever the external things. Our society today wants to tell us the problem's external, doesn't it? Wants to say all your issues could be solved if we could just fix all of these external things. It's not what it is. It's the heart. It's the human heart. It's the what we've got going on inside. And God is the one who knows that. He's the one who knows the heart. And and because he knew the heart, he sent his son to save us because he loves us. Because he's merciful and gracious and loving. So, so that's that's what I wanted to share with you this morning. Um, and just the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? That, that we've been given new life uh, by putting our faith and trust in him. That when we come to him in humility and repentance, we find life and salvation. And you know he he could have he could have come to rule, and then we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? We'd be we'd still have our 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 heart, we'd still be in our sin, and we'd still have to face him on our own. But he didn't. He didn't come to rule. He came to rescue. Let's just close in a word of prayer, Father. As we come before you, we just we're grateful. We thank you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that. Uh, even in the garden when, when Adam and Eve sinned and, and humanity fell and sin entered into the world, you put in a, a plan in place to restore us and reconcile us back to yourself. And Lord, we're just so grateful for your love and your mercy towards us, uh, that you saw fit to send your son to come and to live and to live that perfect life in our place and then to die in our place and to become sin for us so that we might become your righteousness. Uh, so that we could be rescued from uh, from an eternity in hell away from you, uh, Lord, to be brought into the kingdom of your son. And Lord, we just thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.